Okay. Good morning. Can you all hear me then? All good. Okay, excellent. It's about the best I've heard. It's not exploding in my own ear. <laughs> um, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is, is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at Real Life Church. I have the privilege this morning of, um, of speaking to you from Psalm 130. I'm married to Becky, who quite rarely, but we'll see more and more of her since not being involved in kids' work, is with me um, up front. And we have three kids, Joel, who's 16 and in the first year of A-levels, Caitlin, who is 15 and in year 10, and Isaac, who is 8 and in year 3. Um, we've been in the UK now for about 11 years. We come originally from South Africa. People have told me that I still haven't lost my accent. I think that's probably going to be the case forever. Um, and I'm very happy about that, actually, because I think it's a, it's a part of our heritage, a part of our story. It's a part of who God has made us, and it's a part of the story He wants to tell to the world through us. Um, we, sh- we have dual nationality now, so we're, we're positively British, and, and with you through thick and thin, um, including the current political dilemma, we are with you. <laughs> we are not standing on the sidelines laughing, we are panicking as well. Um, but we panic in a sense, knowing full well that God's got it all in control. And I think that's what sets us apart as the church, doesn't it? We can be honest and sober about our situation, but at the same time, we can rest in the peace, knowing that God is in control. And from the beginning of creation, He knew that Brexit was a thing. Um, Today, I get to preach to you, as I said, out of Psalm 130. But before we do that, just a quick reminder, this is called Life's Playlist. Remember, we spoke a little bit about how these were songs. These were probably like contemporary songs to, to Israel. These are the songs that um, they sang on their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And we all have playlists of our lives in our lives. And um, one of the things we want to do as well is make sure that you get to know some of our leaders a little bit better and hear the kinds of music that they love to listen to on their, in their day-to-day. So today, we have the privilege of hearing from Andrew Pinder, who should grab a mic from Matt right there. Yeah, and Andrew's going to share his playlist with us. Yep. Morning. Um, is, is this on? Yeah. Morning. My name's Andrew. I'm married to Becca down there, who incidentally, like Gemma last week, is a big Boyzone fan. Um, we have two children, Thomas, who's nine, and Anna, who's six. Um, in the church, I help run a children's group. Um, I'm on the safeguarding team, and I'm also one of the directors. Um, pl- the place I listen to music, for the last 10 years, basically, it's been in the car on the way to work and at work, for some reason. Um, I've been commuting to Worcester for 11 and a half years, I think, and two weeks ago I started a new job in the centre of town, so where I listen to my work will change a bit, because the work's a bit busier. Um, Ever since I was 16, I've actually loved loud guitar-based music. And over... (laughs) Over... There are many bands... There are some bands and some songs I no longer listen to, since becoming a Christian, things have changed a bit, but I still love that kind of music. Um, the kind of bands I listen to a lot are Paul, well, bands, artists, uh, Joe Satriani, Paul Gilbert, fantastic music. Um, okay. The kind of, what other, 
other music I listen to a lot, actually, recently, I found myself listening to Handel's Messiah a lot, which is just straight out the Bible. And it's really fascinating to hear those lines from Isaiah sung over and over and over again in various ways. Um, I, I really, I was quite surprised I came across it once. Um, I also listen a lot to the Newsboys, um, Errol, who did Dancing in... Um, sorry, the names just dropped out of my head. Uh, Daryl, Daryl somebody other. Daryl. Sorry. Um, John Oates, Daryl Hall. No, no. I'll <laughs> no. forget it. Then. Jeremy, that's your playlist. That's <laughs> I know, playlist. I'm getting older. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, the Newsboys, those guys... I've listened a lot to the Wren Collective recently. Really cheerful, upbeat music. And I really, I really like that because, you know, victory's been won. The job is done. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. You know, um, and I still remember, it's almost 20 years ago, this time of year, actually, that I became a Christian. And I still remember that day, the weight falling from my shoulders. And, and when I hear those really upbeat tunes, I can't help thinking, everyone should be, should be doing a little dance because it's done. Um, other music I listen to, is recently I've come across a pair of Austrian, I think the Austrian brothers, called Son of a Bach. And they do Bach tunes, but they do it with loud guitars and drums, which you wouldn't think actually works, but it's actually pretty good. And you can, I think you can only find them on YouTube, but if you like that kind of stuff, you should check them out. Um, there we go, is that it? That's it. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, take the mic down with you. Andrew's, um, Andrew also likes... Testing our character by wearing an all-black jersey on stage. Um, thank you for that, Andrew. <laughs> right. So as I said, I'm going to be I'm going to move across a little bit. I'm going to be um, looking at um, the Psalms again. And I just want to remind you very quickly of the structure of the Psalms of Ascent. Remember, we're, we've got. Uh, a set of psalms that are broken up into four triads, essentially, and we've got um, the first the first of each triad looking at uh, a situation of stress or, or, or persecution or oppression or, or something coming against the, the psalmist. And in the second one, we see an expression of the joy of God's deliverance or an assurance of God being able to deliver the psalmist from that situation. And then in the third, we have a picture of what it's like to to be in God's holy city, to be in Jerusalem. And we go through that um, three times before we look at three, three psalms in a row about being in God's holy city. And this isn't Jerusalem as it was or as it is now. This is the, the new Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem that God has promised to His, his people. And um, we listened to, to 129 last week, and I have the privilege of preaching the gospel to you essentially because this is a deliverance psalm, it's also a penit penitent psalm, and uh, Martin Luther called it a, a Pauline psalm, and the reason for that is pretty much most of the gospel is contained within the psalm. So I'm going to have uh, an exciting time talking to you about that because I love preaching the gospel, and when I can preach it out of the Old Testament, all the better. So um, the song I've chosen to represent this, this psalm is... Come on, everyone go. No idea. Anybody? Neil, Neil knows. You've got it now. Okay. Right. Okay. So, 
Anybody want to hazard a guess? Stop yawning, young people. <laughs> okay, well, Neil, you hold back then. Anyone else want to have a guess? Okay, Neil, tell us. Redemption song, Bob Marley, 1980, not that long ago. Come on. Um, so... I thought I'd keep the reggae theme, seeing we, we, we had it last week, um, but I, what I wanted to subtly do was just um, move the eye away from South Africa um, and onto the UK's um, part in slave trade, you know, because <laughs> that's the way I give you joy. Um, and that's, that's what the song is about. It's essentially Bob Marley singing about the heritage of the West Indies um, and his his ancestors, and putting himself in the place of those people that populated the West Indies. It's an amazing song by a brilliant musician who, who used biblical imagery and the idea of spiritual deliverance and redemption from sin as a, as a metaphor. Um, it was a metaphor for physical liberation of, of an actual oppressed people, and many of Bob's songs sound like the Psalms that we're reading at the moment. Um, as I say, there's this honesty about oppression, about their situation. There's, there's a call to God for deliverance. There's an anticipation of a, a glorious future. But the psalm I'm about to read to you from is um, slightly different to the psalms of ascent in, 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 as a whole and slightly different to Bob's idea of redemption or salvation. And... Um, as I start reading it, maybe you'll see that, but we'll go into it a little more carefully after I've read through the text and grapple with its immediate context, um, look at its relationship to the gospel message of Jesus and how it applies to us. But let's, let's read the text. So Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. I said earlier that Martin Luther considered Psalm 130 one of his favorites. He considered it to be Pauline, and I said it contains most of the gospel. Really what I mean by that is it emphasizes much of what Paul emphasized in his letters to the churches. Firstly, it emphasizes that humans are by nature condemned because of their sin. Secondly, it, it emphasizes very strongly that mercy is, is free and unmerited. There's nothing that you can do to earn this mercy. This is a free gift from God given to undeserving sinners who are justly condemned. Thirdly, it emphasizes that redemption is primarily a spiritual matter. It's most importantly dealing with the problem between man and God, not between man and man. And fourthly, uh, it emphasizes that salvation is completely and utterly God's work. 
Um, while, while I was preparing for the sermon, I was um, reminded of a, I suppose, a, a vignette, a little snippet out of my past, and, and my past getting harder and harder to remember. Um, but this one, I do remember. I remember being uh, an 18-year-old, fresh out of school, starting to study graphic design and thinking I was the man, um, hanging out in a bar with some friends, being a little bit irritated with some of my other friends who were what we called happy clappy Christians. They, they made a noise about Jesus all of the time, and I was quite irritated with them because I considered myself to be a Christian, and to be quite honest, I considered myself to be a bit of a crusader for Jesus. I thought I was doing Jesus a big favor in Port Elizabeth. Um, I, I, I felt that I was making a, a, a strong stand for who he was, and one of the ways I used to do, do this was <clears throat> paint religious stuff on my surfboard. So um, I had one surfboard with a massive cross on it, and I had another surfboard with a massive angel on it. Um, and I thought that every time I went surfing, I, I was kind of like making a statement about I stand for Jesus. Um, but the truth was... I wish I could underst- I understood at that point um, that I was not quite the legend I thought I was. And this psalm kind of points out to, to this particular psalmist and to Israel that um, their situation is a lot more dire than they thought. And for me, my situation was a lot more dire than I thought. It wasn't enough to just believe that God exists or even enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I uh, needed to come to a point where I realized I actually needed him rather than him needing me to do him a favor by putting some religious symbols on my surfboard and somehow that um, being a stance for, for him. Um, I, don't, I don't despise that. I mean, I think that was part of my development and, and learning a little bit more about who Christ is. And I came to salvation a couple of months after that. But it was an important story for me. So it's a Pauline psalm. It talks about the gospel. It talks about man's need for God rather than God's need for man. Um, In addition, it's also referred to as a penitent psalm. And what is meant by that is that it grapples with the psalmist's own iniquity, his own sin, um, as his most dangerous enemy, more dangerous than any external enemy that could come against him. And it puts him in a place where he confesses He confesses that in the light of his own sin and in the light of the holiness of God and how amazing God is, that he is in an absolutely hopeless situation. He acknowledges it fully, and then he he throws himself on the mercy of God, which, which we see in the psalm is freely given to him, and as a result, comes to salvation. And only after that, only after he's gone through that, does he then address Israel and tell them to hope in the Lord. So the psalm is different to the others because it's primarily personal. It's primarily penitent, and it acknowledges that the greatest enemy is not the robbers on the sides of the road or a corrupt king or a pagan nation, but our very natures. So let's have a quick look again at that tried structure of these psalms, and I just want to show you how, how even the structure points out that this is the most important thing to consider for all of those pilgrims. Those first two triads that we look at, 
120 through to 122, and then 123 through to 125. Those two triads deal primarily with situations or challenges that would come against the psalmists on their pilgrimage, their physical pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So they've uh, packed their bags, they're walking out of their house, and they're going to go on the road, the pilgrim way to Jerusalem, and they acknowledge that there are perils on the way. There are dangers. And it talks about how, G- how God can deliver them from those very immediate dangers. And then we go into the third triad, 126 through to 128, and for that triad, we stay in Jerusalem the whole way. It becomes, it moves from a a physical pilgrimage to a spiritual pilgrimage. It starts in Jerusalem, but not the Jerusalem of promise, the Jerusalem as it was, the flawed Jerusalem, the Jerusalem with a a fallen king um, being ruled by a pagan nation. And the promise of God's deliverance of that physical Jerusalem and the promise of the new Jerusalem and that hope. And then we start this triad that we're in now with 129, um, looking at adversity in its worst forms. So 126 looks at adversity from the nations. It's a much bigger context. 129 is the most gruesome expression of that, that, that adversity. So it's kind of like moving from, from immediate context to general context, and it's, it's moving in, in seriousness all the way through the Psalms. And then we come to 130, and at 130 we, we see the crux of the problem, that the greatest enemy, Israel's biggest problem, is not any of these external enemies. It's an internal one. It's a depraved nature. There's an old saying um, that some of you, you, you may be able to roll off your tongue very easily. It's, the new is in the old contained, and the old is in the new explained. And it refers to the fact that the gospel has always been God's plan from the very beginning. It's not the final update after a bunch of failed attempts or or versions that didn't work. It's not salvation 2.0. And it's as plain as day when you see both the Old and New Testaments together. We have that privilege. We have the whole Bible in front of us. We get to read the Old Testament. We get to read the New Testament. This psalmist was writing in a context where they were looking forward to the hope of a Messiah. They were looking forward to the promised King of Israel who would come and deliver them. And many of Israel were looking for that physical deliverance, just like Bob Marley was looking for physical deliverance for his people from an oppressed people. Israel was looking for the same thing. But when you see the old and the new together, you can see that this deliverance that God was promising through his Messiah wasn't primarily about this physical deliverance. It was primarily about making peace between God and man, bridging the biggest gap and making sure that there's reconciliation in the most unreconcilable issue that Israel had. And this psalm is a a beautiful, clear example of this. It's soaked in gospel and the beautiful redeeming of Christ on the cross. And I've just moved the wrong way. It's a firm reminder to us that God will and for us has 
So the psalmist looking at it and saying, God will, we look at it and we can see that God has overcome every problem of hostility and opposition. And most importantly, that He will and that He has in the same way completely dealt with sin when Christ went to the cross, completely and utterly dealt with sin, which is far more important a far more important challenge than dealing with earthly oppression because at the end of the day, what value is it to us? What value is it to God's people if all earthly opposition ends but we're not at peace with God? What difference would that make to us in the end? And that's really the difference. You know, I I like John Lennon. I like singing some of his songs. Some of them I can't open my mouth and sing because I understand that this is the difference between Jesus and John Lennon. This is the difference between utopia and heaven. John Lennon was looking for utopia. He was looking for a human notion of of peace between man and man without God, with, with no need of God because men would live in peace with each other. Jesus was talking to us about heaven. He was talking to us about a a peace between God and man. And then peace would come between men after that, but primarily peace between God and man. Right. So let's look at this then. Sin is a massive, massive problem. It's like drowning in the darkness of the ocean. If we can have that, that text up, That's the first line of the psalm, out of the depths. That might not sound like much to us, but this allusion to depths is a common theme in Jewish literature, and it refers to the depths of the sea, which was a very, very bad place for Jewish people. Monsters lived there. People died there. It symbolized the worst possible situation a person could find themselves in, where they can't be heard, they can't be seen, and where they will die alone. Kind of like hell. And this is where our psalmist finds himself. His problem is not life's troubles. We've spoken about all of those, but he gets to this point, and this is the point of crisis. It's not life's troubles, whether they're immediate or general, but his own iniquities. And it leaves him without a foothold. It leaves him with nowhere to stand. And it leaves him in a whole sea of trouble and unable to securely stand in the presence of God because of his sin. Before I go any further, I know that sin is a a word that's wrapped with meaning. And we all have a a different interpretation of, of what it could mean. But in this particular context, the word that the ESV translates as iniquity rather than as sin is not about what we do primarily, it's about who we are. It's about our very nature. It's about our condition. It's not a list of naughty things that we've done. It's the underlying fundamental reason why we are rebellious and defiant, and for many of us, ignorant and possibly even not caring about God. It's a part of who we are, and we are as able to change it as we can cease to be human. It's utterly impossible. We can't change 
this condition. And that's why the psalmist says what he says, that he is utterly helpless. In the midst of this, he's praying. In the midst of this, he's calling out to God. Also, the type of guilt in mind here is not feelings of guilt or no feelings of guilt. I know many of us struggle with feelings of guilt for a multitude of things. We feel guilty because we ate ice cream last night. We feel guilty because our parents um, had unrealistic expectations of us and we could never live up to any of those expectations. And so we always felt that we were falling short. Um, we, 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 we feel that perhaps we're letting the boss down because we're not quite sure what their expectations are. And so we try really hard to please them, but nothing we do seems to work. We seem to be missing the mark. Some of us seem to walk through life with absolutely no feelings of guilt at all, ever. We just cruise along with the sense of we're on, we, we, we stand on the moral high ground and nothing we ever do causes anybody any pain. Um, I'm not talking about all the way to psychotic, but, you know, somewhere along that spectrum. I'm not talking about those kinds of feelings. The Psalm's not talking about those kinds of feelings of guilt. It's talking about forensic guilt. It's talking about you've been tried and tested in a court of law, and you've been found guilty regardless of how you feel. You might feel like you're absolutely fine with God, but the truth is, legally, you're not. And this psalmist, it's almost like he's in the court of law, and the judge has pronounced him guilty. And whether he felt guilty or not, all of a sudden, there's a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach as he realizes he's going to be spending eternity being punished for his sin. It's forensic. It's evidence-led. When we get to a place that the psalmist got to, and we understand how dire our situation is, it's only then that we can really um, understand our need for God. And that's where the good news comes in. That's where we start seeing the psalmist talking about mercy. And the fact that he's even talking to God at all, knowing what his problem is, um, points us to the fact that he knows that God is listening. So you see, the problem in a sense is God, and the solution to the problem is God. Now let me explain that a little bit for you. God's nature is what makes sin such a big problem. I know you've all had a teacher or a parent or somebody in your life that has just given you a, a sly little nod and a wink when you've done something wrong, kind of like admonishing you publicly, but letting you know that they actually think that's funny. It's not that serious. It's okay. Don't worry about it. This is not the kind of thing that God does with sin. He doesn't just nod and wink at sin. He absolutely despises it. He hates it. This isn't like um, when you, you forget to pour the milk out your bowl before you put it in the dishwasher. This is like punching the queen in the face. That's how serious sin is to God. Multiplied by a million to the power of ten. But it's that same nature that brings us release. So if God was not holy, sin would not matter. Um, if He took no notice of our sin, He didn't record our wrongs, our rebelliousness would not matter. But He is holy, and He knows everything about us. He's holy, He knows everything about us, and He hates sin. That's massive. 
Yeah, so we get there. We get to this point where we understand how serious things are. And the Psalm 130 also speaks for the whole Bible when it says, but, but with you is forgiveness. But with you is forgiveness. Remember the context of this. This is um, the Old Testament where you have to make sacrifices to be right with God. But here's the psalm standing in the midst of that context saying, actually, there's nothing you can do to make right with God. The sacrificial system, when we look at it from the New Testament's perspective, is simply a reminder of how sinful you are and how desperately you need God's mercy because the only one who can deliver you from the consequences of sin at the end of the day is God himself. And he shows you mercy. And you see, it says that, but with you there is forgiveness. It's almost like forgiveness is his constant companion. It's with him all the time. And it's the real deal. It's not like heartfelt human, uh, sorry, it's not like human forgiveness that seems to fail more often than not. This is, this is forgiveness that can deal with any need. And it fully satisfies God's nature. It fully satisfies His need for holiness. It fully satisfies His need for justice. There's a second companion as well in verse 7. For with the Lord is unfailing love. That's an, that's an interpretation. If we can pull that verse up as well. For steadfast love. Unfailing. Steadfast and the word there, another Hebrew word that's packed with meaning, chesed. Now, let me ex try and explain chesed. When Becky and I first met, actually before Becky and I first met, I had heartfelt feelings of love for Becky. And um, she didn't even know me at the time, but I had those feelings. When we met, we dated and we got to know each other, those feelings were reciprocated. And no one could deny that Becky and I loved each other. But there came a day when we got married. And um, we said these vows, we said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And then we publicly affirmed the sort of love by, by saying one to the other, I will. I will. And this is the kind of love that I'm talking about. This is love that's centered primarily in the will, not the emotions. They're not feelings of love. They are, they are, it's a settled commitment, um, not fluctuating with, with feelings and unchanging. Honestly, my feelings towards Becky change. As much as I love her, there are days where my feelings don't necessarily reflect that. And most of the time, it's not even Becky's fault. It's because of what I ate, or because I had a late night, or because I had a particularly stressful day at work. Those feelings are not the basis for chesed. Chesed is a settled commitment. It's the Lord's unchanging commitment to His people, His ever unchanging love. And in the Lord's case, unlike in mine, His never fails or fades. I don't want to, but I'm fairly sure I fail Becky quite often. But the Lord never fails me, and He never fails you. 
I just wanted to uh, read a quick piece out of here um, from, uh, from this devotional. It's a story about John Owen. Some of you might know who John Owen was, but he was um, a Congregationalist Puritan of the, in the 17th century, and at a very difficult time in his life, he wrote a, a treatise, a commentary on, on the psalm, and in, and in particular on this verse, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. At a time when Owen was doubting his salvation and lacking assurance, when the devil was suggesting to him that his sins were so great that God couldn't possibly forgive them, the words of this psalm proved of immense help to him. What he saw was that God forgives all kinds of sins, all quantities of sins. And that was massive to him, massive. It was an acknowledgement of his sinfulness, but a, a grasping of the understanding that, that God was bigger than all of those sins and his forgiveness was bigger and more sufficient than necessary for any kind of sin. On top of that, so God's had got two companions. He's got forgiveness, he's got unfailing love, and he has a third companion, redemption. From all of his iniquities. Another interpretation says, to an abundant degree with him is redemption. With the consequence being that he himself will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. The word for redeem here is pada, P-A-D-A-H. I might get that wrong in, in um, pronunciation. Um, but it has in this psalm a very specific meaning. It refers to the Lord's abundant capacity, not only to forgive, but to protect and to rescue or to ransom His people from iniquity and its consequences. In other words, back here in the Old Testament, before Jesus was born, God was talking to His people about the fact that He could rescue them completely. And it's the same for our current day and age. The Lord has found a ransom price that on one hand satisfies His holiness and appeases His wrath, and on the other hand releases His unfailing love to flow out unchecked to the ones that are guilty, completely unchecked. So what we have here is a psalmist who prays in the midst of his sin to God, knowing full well that he will rescue him completely. There's a soberness about his situation and a confidence in God's ability to deliver. And how do you know that he's expecting God to do all of the rescuing, all of the salvation? Because after praying, he waits. And this is something, I mean, I get frustrated when people say, okay, so how do we apply this to our lives? I'm like, fine, some verses you can apply directly to your lives, but how do you apply that? Essentially, my application is, wait. But it's not just a passive waiting that he does. He's, he's, he's expecting God to do the rescuing. There's no list of resolutions 
from him. It's not like, Lord, this is my situation, come and deliver me, and if you do, I'll do this, 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 and this, and I'll, I'll bake cakes for mom, and I'll remember her birthday, and um, I'll say sorry to the king for what I um, said last night when he issued that decree. Um, there's no list of those resolutions of things he's going to do to remediate the situation. He knows there's nothing he can do. He knows that he could do a million different things. It would make absolutely no difference to his situation. He is completely and utterly dependent on God for his salvation. And that is the correct posture. The correct posture for us, having known Christ and knowing what he has done for us in the light of our condition is to have a quiet assurance and trust in the Lord. So then I'll come on to application. What do we do with all of this? And I guess, um, sorry, we start in the middle. God is completely able to deliver us from our iniquity. He can redeem us, literally pay the price for our freedom. And some of us need to know that. Some of us think that what we've done is too big for God that he is incapable of dealing with that. And I'm not going to name that, but this psalm tells us, Jesus tells us, Paul tells us that there is no sin that is too great for God to deal with. He is completely able to deliver us from our iniquity. And in the case of Old Testament Israel, he used their history and the deliverance from physical enemies as an example to them of his faithfulness and his ability to deal with their deepest enemy, their own nature. But the context of this deliverance is the psalmist's acknowledgement of sin as a real problem, not just a violation of some social construct, not a petty misdemeanor to be shrugged off like teacher does sometimes, not just a part of who he is that needs to be accepted or embraced. He acknowledges it as a massive, insurmountable problem. And so I guess for me, my question to us is how do we view our sin? Is it an inconvenient distraction caused by some outdated moral code that restricts our freedom? Is it just a part of who we are and calling it sin is insensitive? Is it something that we should forget about now that we've found Jesus? Or is it acknowledged honestly as an insurmountable and terrible problem which prevents us from ever being reconciled to God? Because it's only when we come to that point that we can truly, where we can truly honestly admit that we desperately, desperately need God's mercy, that He no longer needs us. It's not like getting me in your army is going to be a great thing, God. Here's my CV, check it out. It's like, hang on, God, I've got absolutely nothing to offer you. I've got no way of getting out of the situation. I desperately need you. So do you hate your sin? Secondly, when you have acknowledged the horror of this internal enemy, do you? Do you turn to God for mercy? The psalmist wasn't silent here. It was in the midst of his sin that he was praying to God, turning to Him for mercy. And I just wanted to... Um, those people that I was talking to where you felt like there was a sin that he can't deal with. Not only can he deal with it, but he can hear the quietest voice. So when you feel like you're in the depths where no one can hear you and no one can see you, he can. 
He hears you. So call out to him. And thirdly, if we look at that the result of this redemption is a hopeful waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. And for us who are saved, we no longer need to wait for his redemption. Isn't that right? I mean, he's done it at the cross. It is finished. He has redeemed us. He has completely paid for sin. But we are waiting for his return, aren't we? We are waiting. And so many of us sit in that waiting, unsatisfied with the way things are right now, just like the psalmist was in his day and age. We're waiting. We're still waiting for that day when he makes all things new again, when he banishes sin and death forever, when there's no more pain, when there's no more suffering, when there's no more tears, when there will be healing. We don't even need to pray for healing. We're just healed My question is, how are we waiting? What are we doing between now and then? Are we waiting as the psalmist is, with confidence and peace, resting on the assurance of His Word, that which is said to us, that which we read day to day, and that which we see in glimpses of of the kingdom breaking through when we pray for healing, when we pray for deliverance, when we pray for salvation, and we see God come through for people? Paul tells us that now we see in part and prophesy in part, and then we will see fully. And also, we see healing and provision in part now, but then we will see it complete. How are we waiting? So if we know that we are sinful, and we know that God can deliver us from every sin, and because of that we can wait with assurance, we're in a situation there where we can deal with any adversity or suffering that comes our way. This is a strong, robust theology of suffering. We can live in a world that is opposed to us because we've been delivered from a far greater enemy than the world, a far greater enemy. And the result of that is that we can look toward the future with peaceful confidence in its fulfillment. Okay, worship team, can you come up, please? Um, So last week... Last week, we prayed for the persecuted church. We prayed for our brothers and our sisters around the world who who come under actual physical opposition because of their beliefs. We're very privileged in this country. We might get a bit of flack at work. We might get uh, um, slighted every now and again by a comedian, um, but never are our lives in danger because of what we believe. But there are many people, and we hear stories about them all the time, that actually face death because of their beliefs. We prayed for them last week, but this week I would ask that we cry out for all of those who are in the depths, all of those that are unable to even acknowledge the tragedy of their situation and blissfully continue their lives completely ignorant of the fact that they're in a rudderless dinghy in the middle of the perfect storm in the center of an infinite ocean that will consume them entirely. Let us pray that their eyes are opened, that their ears are opened, and that they become aware of the terror of their condition. And then, most importantly, let us pray that they hear God's voice in the midst of the storm 
and that they throw themselves on the mercy of God and await his rescue. So we're going to pray for that. And finally, we're going to pray for ourselves that we would be like Paul. For those of us that have thrown ourselves on the mercy of God, that we would continue to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, that we wouldn't think that once that's done, we can forget about our sin and carry on merrily. But we're going to be like Paul, and we're going to throw ourselves continually on the mercy of God, and as we do that, become more and more aware of the massive chasm between His holiness and our sin. And because of that, the cross that started off being significant in our lives becomes bigger and bigger and bigger because the chasm that it crosses becomes all the more large in our minds. This is what Paul loved. Not that once Christ saved me, I can carry on my merry way, but when Christ saved me, he gave me the ability through grace to grow in holiness while being more and more aware of how massive the journey was from condemnation to salvation. And let that fuel our praise, fuel our worship. Man, when you know that Jesus does that for you, you can't sit in your seat and half-heartedly sing songs to him about, yeah, you're so wonderful. If it doesn't come from your heart, then something's wrong. So let's pray that God will awaken in our hearts a sense of how big he is and how amazing he is and how wondrous his work is in our lives. Let's stand. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray out loud, but we can all pray. Let's pray for those, those beautiful people, those people that God loves, that don't even know where they are. So, Lord God, we stand in the gap for all of those people that we know in our lives, that we love dearly, that we care for dearly, and that we know you love, who live their lives ignorant of not just you, but the condition of their hearts. For those that are completely unaware that they even need a Savior, that walk through their lives not realizing that they are in a terrible storm. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you speak to their hearts, that you speak to their minds, and Lord, that you open their spiritual eyes and ears to see the terror of the situation that they're in. That it would be like they're waking up for the first time, only to see the horror of their lives for the first time. And Lord God, we pray that in the midst of that storm that they hear your voice that they hear you calling out to them, saying that you love them, that you care for them, that you want to save them. And Lord, that they would turn to you and throw themselves desperately upon your mercy, upon your grace, and upon your forgiveness. 
Lord, we pray for your salvation in their hearts now, in Jesus' name. And Lord, for those of us that did that, that realized that, that came to a point where you, Holy Spirit, made us alive to you and gave us the ability to understand what we needed from you, Lord, we pray that we continue to throw ourselves at your mercy, that we never come to a point where we are self-reliant, where we now think we can walk on our own, but that we realize that we're completely and utterly dependent on you, Jesus. And Lord, may our songs now come from a heart that's filled with joy and peace and a knowledge that you will fulfill what you have promised, that you will complete what you have said you'd do. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.